It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, nothing can be known either of God or man until God has become a man through Jesus Christ. Bonhoeffer's point is that the deeper you understand Jesus, the more profoundly you understand both God and yourself. We've reached week number four of our series, My Father's World, and today we're going to be talking about Christ and creation. Now, when I talk about Christ, I'm talking about the eternal word. I'm talking about the eternal son. I'm talking about the second person of the Trinity, the one who took on flesh and became known to us as Jesus. I'm talking about Jesus. Now, that phrase, Christ and creation, uh, basically takes us to a a study of the connection of Christ to creation. So before Adam and Eve came to be, and then through the incarnation, through the, the life of Jesus in flesh, through his crucifixion, then his resurrection, ascension into heaven, and even the connection to Pentecost and the gift of the Spirit. Christ is connected intimately to creation to the point where creation is moved by Christ. The question today is, are we moved by Christ in the same way? When you understand the connection of Christ to creation, you ultimately recognize that creation exemplifies the type of response to Christ that we are called to express as followers of Christ. And so my hope today is that you would be deeply moved by how central Christ is to a a Christian's response to creation and creation's concerns. Christ created it. He was incarnated into it. He was crucified within it. And he will redeem it. Nothing substantial can be known about creation until we perceive the connection of Christ to it. Jesus is at the heart of it all. So what I want to do is start right at the beginning. I want to start with the connection of Christ to creation. We're going to talk about Christ and creation. I love Francis Schaeffer. I've read a number of his books. And in one of his books, No Final Conflict, Schaeffer lists several areas where, in his judgment, it's possible for two believers to hold to the the reliability, historical reliability of the Scriptures, the significance of the Scriptures for their daily life, and then read Genesis chapter 1 and actually reach a number of different conclusions about what happened when he says it's possible it's possible for believers to believe in the scriptures and to disagree on some of the hows of creation he gives seven examples he says for example there you can you can have two people who can hold to the truth of the scriptures and one would agree that believe that there's a possibility that god created a grown-up universe Secondly, he says there's a possibility of a gap between Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 and Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, or between Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 and Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3. 
he says there's a possibility of a long day in Genesis chapter 1. Fourth, he said there's a possibility that the flood of Noah's day affected all of the geological data. He said, listen, fifthly, there's the possibility that the use of the word kinds in Genesis chapter 1 may well be a lot broader than some people think. He says it's also possible that the death of animals actually happened before the fall unaffected by sin. He also says, seventhly, that the word uh, bara in Hebrew actually um, is used in such a way that there's a possibility of sequencing from previously existing things. He said, look, you can have two people who actually believe in the truth of the scriptures, that the scriptures are historically reliable, they provide historically reliable data, and ultimately reach this, uh, different conclusions on all of these things. Now, key point, Schaefer doesn't claim to hold any of these positions, and neither do I. Hold on to that, please. My only intent is to show that some things are theoretically possible when people hold to the Scriptures being historically reliable. The bigger problem for Schaefer is actually when people don't hold to the Bible as having anything historical to say. And he said in that moment, whether it's on creation or any other topic, it is not God that is speaking through this person. It is ultimately their political or their culturally conditioned mindset. Why on earth did I start there? You may be someone who has a different opinion to someone else on all of those seven factors in Genesis that I just spoke uh, about, and you may still hold to the historic reliability of the Scriptures, but we may be different on all of these things, but there's one thing no Christian can ever be different on. It's the centrality of Christ to creation. You may have a different opinion on whether there's a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, or between Genesis 1-2 and Genesis 1-3. We may disagree on all of that. But you cannot be a Christian and disagree that Christ is central to creation. It's just not possible. Have a look at this. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. Now how do we understand it? By proof we understand that? By faith. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, God's word, God's rhema. So that what is not seen was not made out of what was, so what is seen rather was not made out of what was visible. The author of Hebrews says that there was a time when there was nothing but God. The author in the Greek couldn't have been more clear than that. There was a time when there was nothing but God. Until God spoke, Genesis 1-3, let there be light, time, space, matter, had no existence at all. Many years ago, Sir Isaac Newton had an exact replica of the universe as he understood it, the golden ball representing the sun, and there were these spheres that were there, one for Venus, one for Mars, one for the Earth, all of the other planets. All of these balls, these spheres were kind of connected through cogs and belts, and then when he moved one of them, everything started to revolve. It was an incredible 
It was an incredible uh, thing to look at. Well, one day, one of uh, Newton's friends who didn't believe in the biblical account of creation came along and, and looked at this thing for the first time, and they were just amazed by the whole thing. They were like, wow, th Newton, this is unbelievable. What an exquisite piece of work this is. Who made it for you? Without even pausing, Newton says, no one. No one? Newton's friend replied. That's right, I said nobody. And then apparently Newton said this, all of these balls, cogs and belts and gears just happened to come together and wonder of wonders by chance they began revolving in their set orbits in perfect sequence. His friend is said to have laughed and got the message. Hebrews 11.3 says it was at God's word that the universe was formed. God's rhema. That's a thought echoed by the Apostle John. He changes the word word here from rhema to logos, but he says the same thing. Look at this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the, in the beginning. You see, the eternal Christ is the word. And that's why we read what we read in verse 3. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. You see, you may disagree with me on certain interpretations of Genesis chapter 1, and the reality is we can still both hold to the Scriptures, but we cannot both hold to the Scriptures if we discount the fact that Christ stands at the heart of creation. This is what separates anyone who is concerned for anything ecological from a person who is a Christian who is concerned from anything ecological. We cannot agree on this, just like we could not agree. We we will not agree that the heart of the creational problem, any environmental concerns, is actually a relational problem. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3. For us, that is the real account of history. See, there may well be aspects that we disagree on, on the finer details. But at the heart of it all stands Jesus. And it's not just the author of Hebrews. It's not just John who says that. Paul says the same thing, Colossians chapter 1. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Do you get the point? All means all. We may disagree on some of the finer points, but we should never as believers disagree on who stands at the center of it all. Jesus does. So whether it's John, whether it's Paul, whether it's the author of Hebrews, each author echoes what the Old Testament psalmist said. Psalm 33 verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Even Jews heard that. By the word of the Lord, Psalm 33 6, were the heavens made. And all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. By the word of the Lord all of this was made. And so Hebrews 11.3, look at it again. Hebrews 11.3 says that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. What is seen here literally in the Greek means what is being seen. What is being seen as we walk through nature, as we walk through creation, has been made by the word of God. And at one point it did not exist. So what's the application of that? 
Simon Oliver wrote a paper called Every Good and Perfect Gift is from Above. And, and the idea in this paper is to note how the idea of God creating what is called ex nihilo, which means out of nothing, it led people, when this idea was grasped, to comprehend the truth that creation is a gift given to humanity by God. And basically, we respect that gift when human culture and nature are integrated and both are respected. Oliver argues that the world we live in today has shifted from that original idea of the integration of human culture and of nature itself. And, and he says the human culture is really driven by the idea that as human beings, we all have a right to personal freedoms and to personal autonomy. And he said the impact of that on creation concerns is that we've shifted from believing that creation is a gift that is best stewarded when human culture and nature are both respected and integrated to the idea that as a human being, I exist in this playing field of life uh, and on this field, I have the right to express myself and there is very little that should be done to stop me. Oliver says when we take that idea, what we're doing is we are objectifying creation. And when we objectify something, he says it suffers. Oliver's point is that when we recognize that creation was created at God's command, ex nihilo, that it was given to us as a gift to steward. How do we steward that? Through service and care. Care, shema. As God shemas us, keeps us, so we shema the world. As we steward this, we unite human culture and nature in a way that we are demonstrating that we care for the world that God cares for. And why do we do it? Because it's a gift. Humor me for a second. Take a look at the person on either side of you. Seriously, just take a look at the person on either side of you. Some of you are sitting on a long, take a look behind you. Do you realize that this person is a gift? This person is a gift. How do, how do you best steward that gift? Is it not by recognizing that even though I may have personal freedom, I will not steward this gift well if I ultimately consider that person to exist simply to fulfill my needs. And all of you mums are saying, kids, are you listening to this? <laughs> we, we recognize that. We recognize that, wait a minute, we, we limit personal autonomy and freedom when we understand that someone is a gift to us. And we actually objectify people when we think that someone exists only for our benefit. When you truly understand the connection of Christ to creation, and especially how Christ subjected himself to that creation, which he did at the incarnation, you realize, wait a minute, if creation is a gift created by Christ, then basically the way I interact with that gift is not by objectifying it, 
but by sometimes limiting my freedoms to make sure that my actions and creation and nature are mutually respected. I want to tell you that the reason that so many people are suffering in the world is because some of us don't limit our freedoms. I also want to suggest this, that maybe the solution for some of our relational conflicts, which is triggered by objectifying people, is ultimately to go back to Christ, to look at creation, and to realize that how Christ interacted with the creation that he created. And we'll look at this in a few weeks by subjecting himself, Hebrews 2, three times to it, is the very way that we need to interact with creation as well. You see, the centrality of, the of Christ in the creative process is another example of how a Christian committed to creation, a Christian concerned by any environmental crisis, differs in their approach to creation concerns because we have Christ at the center. We have Christ. We can share the concern but we'll never share the motivation because a Christian always has Christ at the heart of it. Because the solution to any ecological crisis is relational. The wonder, of course, of the biblical story is that what is hidden at the beginning, what is hidden in John 1, what's hidden in Hebrews 11, what's hidden in Colossians chapter 1 through the incarnation Actually, it makes this pre-existent Christ, the eternal Christ, the eternal son, step out, as it were, from behind this heavenly curtain and become visible to all of us. And that's the idea here of Christ in the incarnation. I love John 1, 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. See, the Holy Spirit triggered the flesh with which the eternal son was clothed as a man and received the name Jesus. The Holy Spirit. Mary, the child in you, is conceived by the Holy Spirit and he dwelt the verb translated as dwelt in John chapter 1.14 is skinu. What commentators believe to be happening here is that John is actually making a play on words between what the, the believers experienced in Christ and what the people of God experienced in the Old Testament with the tabernacle. Here is a picture of the model at Timna Park near Elat. The tabernacle, you see the word skinu in the Greek is actually very similar to the Septuagint word, the Greek version of the Old Testament, skinne, which was that word for tabernacle in the Old Testament. Skinu, skinne. In other words, just as God was seen to have dwelt with his people in the Old Testament through the, the tabernacle. And remember the, the creative manifestations there with the cloud and the pillar of fire. In the same way, when believers, when people look and engage with Jesus, what we have is the very idea of God literally tabernacling with his people in flesh. 
Anti Wright explains the significance of it like this. In Genesis chapter 1, what we have is a description of the creation of the world in terms of a temple, a heaven and earth reality where humans are with humans as the image within the temple. John here in John chapter 1 is working with that same idea. The divine word through whom the creation temple itself was, ma has, was made himself became the image within the temple. The personal presence of the creation, of the creator. So you see in Genesis chapter 1, heaven and earth is as if there's a temple there and at the center of it is Adam. And in the New Testament, what we have is the same scheme, but what we have at the center of it is the second Adam. We have Jesus Christ. God literally takes on flesh. Paul puts it like this in Colossians chapter 1. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God, look at this, was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All his fullness. Now that word image there, he is the image of the invisible God, is the Greek word icon. Now if you go to a Greek Orthodox church, you'll see all of these icons everywhere. And I look at that and I think, oh, that freaks me out a little bit. Don't know about you, but it freaks me out. But the way I look at this is when I look at my phone, I see an icon. When I look at my tablet, I see an icon. When I'm on my computer screen now, I see an icon. What happens when you click on an icon? You click on the icon and it takes you into another world. There's a world behind the icon. This is the idea behind it. That when you engage with Jesus as the image of God, you embrace Jesus, you connect with Jesus, you go deeper with Jesus. And as you go deeper with Jesus, the invisibility of the Father becomes more real to you. The invisible God becomes real through Jesus. The author of Hebrews says the same thing. In fact, he goes one step further in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. He says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation. That word exact representation is the Greek word character. Where we get the word character from. He was the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the, of the majesty in heaven. That is an even more powerful idea than icon. It's again a stronger image for presenting the idea that in the person of Jesus, God exists. To see Jesus is to see God. The idea that the New Testament writers are trying to convey here is, wow. Let me ask you, when was the last time you looked at someone and said, Wow, I hope it was three minutes ago. I remember the first time I caught eyes, set eyes on Bibka. I was in a room of 3,000 people teaching at a conference. And uh, out of this crowded room, I just saw Vipka, And I was like, wow, of course I had to keep on teaching, right? <laughs> Thought no more of it. Went off. I was going to Berlin uh, to lead a team, co-lead a team of about 300 people doing evangelism on the main streets of Berlin for about three or four weeks. And uh, imagine my surprise as I'm staying in the hotel while we're everybody's sleeping and I've got my head down and I lift up my head and Vipka is straight in front of me. It was still wow. 
The only problem was, instead of sending her down one floor to her room, I sent her up three floors and the elevator wasn't working. Talk about a bad first impression. <laughs> wow. Let me ask you, when was the last time you were wowed by Jesus? A couple of weeks ago, after the first service, I was out in the information desk and somebody came up to me and said, oh, I've got to tell you a funny story. Somebody came to me, they said, and they brought their three-year-old granddaughter to church for the first time. And, and uh, this was a couple of weeks ago. They said, Vipka came up on the stage and, and started to do the prayer. And no sooner as she started than the three-year-old granddaughter looked at her grandma and said, wow, who is that princess? And then she continued, look at her shoes. And Vipka had sandals on. She goes, my shoes? I want to tell you, in 28 years, Vipka's become more beautiful on the inside than she is on the outside. But the question still is the same. When was the last time you were wowed by someone? The idea of the incarnation is quite simply that these biblical writers are trying to convey the wonder of wonders that the invisible God who created absolutely everything from nothing has become visible and in the person of Jesus, the divine presence evident at creation has now come in flesh. And friends, if that doesn't make you feel wow, I don't know what does. So let me ask you again, when was the last time you were wowed by Jesus? Of all of the problems that are going on in the world, all of the problems going on in the church, you know what the solution is? It isn't for better worship or better preaching. It's actually for us to be wowed by Jesus. Let me ask you, are you dry? Are you stale? Because the reality is creation concerns will never flow naturally from the believer if we're not wowed by Jesus. I love the way that Ruth Bankowitz, who's a scientist, puts the wonder of the incarnation in biological terms. She writes this, God the Son became an embryo and submitted to the same processes of development that we all went through. As Mary became a mother for the first time, God assumed humanity in all its organic fragility and gave dignity to biological material like nothing else could. When Jesus walked the earth, he became part of the ecological network of creation using the same genetic code as every other living organism, the same cellular machinery, and the same vital organs as so many other animals. Wow! Do you know that we have 99% of the same genetic code? And yet we're also different. You know we share 96% of the same genetic code with animals? The wonder of it all is that the God who created all of this was willing to limit himself within the very processes that he himself created. Okay, if that doesn't make you go, wow, I don't know what does. The wonder of Jesus. And you know, all too often, right, we've, we've been in the church and the longer we've been in the church, the more we kind of think we know Jesus. And the more we think we know Jesus, the more stale our faith becomes, and quite honestly, the worse it becomes for some other people to be around us. But you know what the wonder of the Jesus story is? Is that as Jesus grew, he grew in wisdom and truth, grace and truth, and he grows, and people start to have to make their choice about what they're going to do with Jesus. And, and some people embrace him, many people do not. But do you know the wonder of wonders? The wonder of wonders is right from the very beginning, 
Creation embraces him. Creation is moved by him in a way that you and I aren't. Think about it. How did the wise men know to come to Jesus? Because the stars aligned. The creation literally is literally, the universe is literally moved because God takes on flesh. Let me ask you, are you? See, the wonder of it all is that when Christ Jesus interacts with creation, creation always obeys. Creation is moved. You know, the reality is it sometimes takes disciples to be a little longer to be moved in that way, right? Isn't it true for all of us? Sometimes we're pretty slow. The disciples were pretty slow. I love what we read here in, in Luke uh, chapter 8. The disciples went and woke him. Why did they wake him? Because Jesus is asleep in a boat during a storm. Now, let me tell you this. If you're going through a storm with Jesus in your life, your boat isn't going to sink. Right? It's, it's not going to sink. You're going to be fine. But they're fretting here because Jesus is asleep during a storm. So they go to him and they wake him. Master, master, we're going to drown. And now look at this. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. Do you, do you think Jesus was grumpy here? You know, I, I was thinking about this, you know, it, it's like Sunday afternoon sometimes. People say to me, Craig, why don't you just go and have a lay down? I'm like, Han, do you realize what's going to happen if I do that? I can't just do this thing where I sleep for 30 seconds and I'm good. That's Vipka, by the way. I remember the first time I went to Germany and she wanted me to take meet her grandparents and they lived in the Black Forest and we had to drive through the mountains in the Black Forest. She said, it's a beautiful drive and it's okay, it's only one street. And I said, what do you mean it's, on, it's okay, it's only one street? She said, well, by the time we get halfway, I'll be a little bit tired and I'm gonna go in the back of the car. It was a VW Golf, by the way, you know, the rabbit as we would call it back then. And uh, I'm just gonna lay down on the back seat and you're gonna drive and I'm like, honey, are you crazy? A, I don't know where I'm going. B, the steering wheel is on the wrong side of the car, which is the right side of the car to all of you. We're going to drive on the wrong side of the street. I've never done this before. And she's like, it'll be fine. I'm not going to sleep long. But sure enough, at one point, she just says, okay, she stops. She throws me the key. She said, okay, you're up. I jump in this car, freaking out. She goes in the back seat of the thing, lays across the you know, lays across the back. By the time I've got to third gear, it seems like she's awake. Okay, done now. And I'm like, phew. Vipka has the ability to kind of wake up and she's just with it. Apart from the middle of the night when the babies needed their diapers changed. I don't quite get that, but I, I, I look at this story and, and Jesus gets up and there's no word of like a conversation between them or anything, right? There's no word of it. He, he gets up, he goes to the back of the boat and he rebukes the wind and the raging waters and what happened? The storm subsided and everything was calm. See, when Jesus interacts with creation, creation is moved. The question is, are we? Having rebuked the wind and the raging waters, look at what we see. We read, what is your faith? In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. See, the movement of the waters is what it took to actually get the disciples to wake up and to see something they hadn't seen before. I want to say it again. Take a good look around. 
the world in which we live. Because when you truly see creation, the deeper you see it, the deeper you see the God within it. Some of us need to have our eyes opened to the wonder of the world we live in. Because quite literally, creation is moved by Jesus over and over and over again. He speaks. They obey. This truth of this passage was brought home to me as a, as a child. I remember going through this, reading the Bible with my mom, and we got to this part of it, and uh, she was reading this, and I'm like, wow, coming to this, I wasn't born in a Christian home. My mom came to faith when I was about seven or eight or something like that, and, and so we were late into it. So we would read the Bible, and we got to that passage, and it, that was like, wow, wind and the waves would actually obey Jesus? And, and as we're going through this, there's this fly, right? And my mother saying, Craig, you do realize that Jesus had that kind of authority, right? And we were trying to get rid of this fly, and it was annoying me. And my mother, no word of a lie, she gets up, she opens the back door, and she says, fly in Jesus' name, leave. The fly left, she closed the door. Now, I can't tell you that that was a regular occurrence in our house, but I do believe that that was a God moment for me, that every time I read this passage, I think about flies. <laughs> I think about flies. The creation obeyed. It was imprinted into my mind. Wow, the authority that Jesus had that he could speak and creation would listen. When Jesus spoke, creation itself, not just flies, obeyed. Now, what we'll often miss <clears throat> is that as the disciples are seeing Jesus speak like this, they're unmistakably seeing the hand of God. And here's why. A couple of Old Testament scriptures, Psalm 104, verse 7. But at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. See, this is something God does. God is the one who has the power to calm the waters in the sea. It's not the only example. We see it again in Psalm 77, verse 16. The water saw you, God. The water saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The point is this. The more profoundly we understand who Jesus is, the more we discover that the means of creation through him and the hope of all creation is in him, something creation knew so that when he spoke, creation listened. Creation is moved by Jesus. Again, are you? Are you? It's Pentecost Sunday, and, and so I want to kind of turn the corner to Pentecost by noting the connection of Christ's creation and the crucifixion. In this series, I've shared my deep conviction that Christians care for the world because we were created in God's image, given the, the right to rule, the mission to subdue, something that should be done in servanthood and in care. We care for creation because God cares for us, but this should not be something we add to our life. Creation care is actually something symptomatic of a deepening relationship with God. And the more we understand Jesus, the more we understand and are able to put into effect our mission to bring all things into subjection to his feet. This 
according to Paul, is called the ministry of reconciliation. We'll look at this in two weeks' time. How when Christ died on the cross, he reconciled us to God. He reconciled us to each other. But there's also a reconciliation happens that is broader than this. It's a reconciliation that is bigger than that. Paul hints at this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is our ministry. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. What was God reconciling to himself? The world to himself. That's not just you and me, that's more than that. He was reconciling the world to himself. When Christ's work was done, Paul says reconciliation was made. Reconciliation was possible. There's something that really frustrates me when we present the gospel, so I'm just going to let it out if that's okay. When we talk about the gospel, we usually talk about Jesus dying on a cross so that I can be right with God. Let me tell you, Jesus died on the cross first of all so that the world, including you and me, would be able to be put right with God. Why? Because God now is right with us. When Jesus died, he averted the righteous wrath of God against sin. The first thing that reconciliation of Christ did was it made God right with us. And because God is all right with us, we can now be right with God. Let's, let's not make us the starting point of salvation. God is the starting point of salvation. When Christ died, it was possible for God to be put right with us. And because that is true, we can be put right with God. John Stott talks about what Christ achieved for us like this. God could, he said, quite justifiably have abandoned us all to our fate. He could have left us alone to reap the fruit of our wrongdoing and to perish in our sins. Is what we deserved. But he didn't. Because he loved us, he came after us in Christ. He pursued us even to the desolate anguish of the cross. Where he bore our sins, our guilt, our judgment, and our death. And then he says this, it takes a hard and stony heart to remain unmoved by a love like that. Are you moved by a love like that? See, creation is moved when Christ speaks. Are we moved by Christ? Creation is also moved when Christ dies. Are you moved by Christ's death? It takes a hard and a stony heart to remain unloved, uh, unmoved by a love like that. Creation was moved, quite literally. At his crucifixion, what are we told? Darkness covered the earth until midday. Creation was moved. Then at his death, what do we read? We read that the earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open. Creation was moved at the death of Christ. Are you? Then we read at the resurrection, Matthew chapter 28, verse 2, there was a violent earthquake. Creation was moved at the Christ event, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It begs the question, are you? And what about the wonder of Pentecost itself? On the day of Pentecost, 
Well, we know the story, 120 believers are locked up in an upper room. Why? Because A, they're scared, but second, they're obediently scared. Jesus said, hey, wait in Jerusalem until you have been endowed, clothed with power from on high. So they're afraid, they've locked themselves away, and they're just praying, and they're praying, and they're praying. And then all of a sudden, there is this mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And do you remember what happens? Th these people who are frightened and locked up are now what? Moved. Moved. They're moved out of an upper room and they start what? Prophesying, declaring the praises of God in languages that they couldn't speak. Now, here's the question. How did the people know that these Galileans couldn't speak their language natively? How did they know they weren't natives? They could understand what they're saying, but what do they say? They actually say, how is it that we understand these, we hear these people speaking in our own tongue? I mean, I'm speaking English to you right now, aren't I? How do you know I'm not native? Because you've got this weird accent, Craig, that's why. <laughs> Galileans have a really thick accent. They were grammatically perfect, but they were phonetically Galilean. And so these people are listening to them thinking, wow, how is this possible? And they say, Peter, are you guys drunk? And Peter said, you think alcohol can do this? The alcoholic spirit can't do this, but the Holy Spirit can. And then look at what he says. This is his explanation. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Note this, please. The New Testament talks not only of the priesthood of all believers, but the prophethood of all believers. We can all know God. God can speak to us all. How? Through the Holy Spirit. And then... Creation itself is moved. Look at this. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and the glorious day of the Lord. Do you realize that Christ, when he speaks, when he acts, when he sends the Spirit, even when he sends the Spirit, the heavens, the creation is moved. And one of the indications of a person being filled with the Holy Spirit, being reconciled to God, is that when God speaks, we move. When God says do something, we do it. This is an infilling of the Holy Spirit. And again, in the same way, our care for creation, being moved by it, is symptomatic of being reconciled to God in Jesus Christ. Say it again. We need to be concerned by creation concerns. Because God is. But at the end of the day, we will never have the same agenda. We will never have the same motivation as secular ecologists. Why? Because for us, the problem with the world is a relational problem. For us, the solution to the world is a relational solution. It began with Jesus in creation. It actually turns, pivots on Jesus, and it will end with a glorious revelation, the glorification of Jesus in all of his glory. And so I'm going to invite the team to come back, and, and they're going to sing a song. It's kind of antiphonal, which some of us find 
awkward. What that basically means is they, they kind of sing a line and, and we're supposed to respond. I want you to note how in this song, written really with revelation in mind, that end in mind, that time when all will be made right, at the center of it all is Jesus. It starts with creation and it moves all the way through. And my encouragement to us today, my invitation to us today, is let your yes to Jesus in this song with we do, it is. Be an expression of your desire to put Jesus at the heart of all you do. I ask you again, when was the last time you were wowed by Jesus? When was the last time you were moved by Jesus? Remember when the filling of the Spirit comes, disciples are moved. Be moved by Jesus. Why? Because he's the center of it all. Be moved by Jesus. Why? Because he truly is worthy of it all. Stand with me as we go to God in prayer and sing a response in this song. Father, we thank you for the wonder of Jesus who truly is at the center of all creation. When Jesus spoke, creation obeyed. When Jesus died, creation was moved. When the Spirit came, creation declared and echoed its affirmation in signs from the heavens. God, may we be moved in the same way as creation is moved to declare your goodness, your wonder, your grace, and your care for the world that you created. As we sing this song, Father, we pray that your spirit would move us to a new revelation, a fresh revelation of who Jesus is. And it's in his mighty name we pray.